Well, if you would, turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. In his book, Ordinary, Michael Horton makes the following statement. He says, like every other area of life, we have come to believe that growth in Christ as individuals or as churches can and should be programmed to generate predictable outcomes that are unrealistic and are not even justified biblically. We want big results sooner rather than later. And we've forgotten that God showers His extraordinary gifts through ordinary means of grace, loves us through ordinary fellow image bearers, and sends us out into the world to love and serve others in ordinary callings. That statement has resonated with me over the last five years after I first read it in 2014. And I think it's done so because over the last 20 years we've been inundated with the plea to do big things for God. We've been inundated to live epically, to be world changers, and to focus on our legacies, on what we're going to leave behind. And, and even most recently, and I just saw it again today, we're even to have fierce marriages. What does that even mean? And of course, those who have made those statements are the ones who define uh, what it means to live big or to do big things for God or to live epically or to, they're the ones that decide what it looks like to leave a legacy. They've determined what is to be remembered and not remembered. And as Dr. Horton said, this is unrealistic. These are unrealistic goals. He says they're not justifiable biblically. And I think as a result, over the years, we've been left with people who are anxiety-ridden, guilt-laden, and failure-fearing. And it's one of the reasons that I love the book of Ephesians so much, because I believe with everything in me that this is the letter to the Ephesians is the antithesis of all of that. We've been studying it since September, and I think you know as well as I do that Paul does speak of a supernatural transformation that leads to, and we could say, and I'm actually going to say, it leads to countercultural living. But that living takes place in ordinary, everyday interactions and conversations in environments like our home and in the church and in the marketplace. In the day-to-day... And so what I want to do, we've come to the end of our study, and what I want to do is I'm going to do something that I don't normally like to do, but I think it's appropriate for us to do tonight, and that is I want to use these last seven verses to, um, as a springboard to look at and summarize the letter as a whole. Okay, uh, Not only just because of wrapping up, but I think it's just appropriate for this evening um, based upon our week, okay? 
So if you would, let's stand together and let's read these last seven verses from Ephesians chapter 6. We're standing in the honor of God's word and the reading of it. Hear now the word of the Lord. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that... Words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Well, God, we'd ask in these moments that as I prayed earlier this evening as we began, would you meet every need? Meet us exactly where we are, no matter where we are. Speak to us clearly, boldly, softly, tenderly, in a way that encourages, heals. Would would you meet us where we are? And I pray, Father, that you would remove anything from me that would get in the way of that because we all need to see Jesus tonight. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So in the middle of this um, exhortation, Paul's exhortation for the church to pray for one another uh, due to the spiritual battle that uh, we're in the midst of that we talked about last week, he pauses and says, that doesn't pause, but he includes himself. He says, would you also, you know, pray for one another, but would you pray for me too? Uh, and it's a very, very simple request. Would you pray that I would have the words to speak uh, and that you, the boldness that I need to speak them? And then after uh, introducing them to Tychicus, who is going to both minister to them and share how Paul is doing, uh, he then closes with a benediction that's encouraging to the church by reminding them this one final time of the faithfulness of God and all that's available to them in Christ. And it seems to be a very simple uh, prayer request and a very simple benediction, but it's really full of meaning because he's actually asking them to pray for uh, his boldness in the words to share with others what he's just finished sharing with them. Uh, and he's... Uh, basically wrapping up through his benediction, sharing with them in one sentence what it's taken him three chapters to, to explain to them earlier in the letter. And so it's very, very significant what he says. Uh, he's explaining to them of the grace that's been uh, extended to them. And he shares again in verse, uh, chapters 4 to 6 that that grace is then something that we're to ex- extend to others. And he wants to, to remind them of that. And so that being the case, I thought we'd look, go back and look at the letter in its entirety. Uh, And I've titled this, An Extraordinary Salvation, or An Extraordinary Salvation, An Ordinary Life. 
And as you might imagine, that's our outline as well. Two points, an extraordinary salvation and an ordinary life. We all arrive here tonight in the midst of a wide variety of circumstances. You've received the emails, you know the prayer requests that we've had. Some are in the midst of very difficult circumstances in which you're dealing with pain, uh, in illness, uh, unknown things that are going on, and it's, and it's left you just physically drained and, and emotionally drained as well. Others are in the midst of a great deal of grief and sorrow due to loss. We have some that are in the midst of difficult employment situations and relationships and family dynamics that are going on. Some are in the midst of taking care of aging parents and dealing with that, the emotional strain of, of those decisions that are going on. Others are in the midst of um, uh, times of, uh, of unknown and confusion because plans don't exactly seem to be working out the way you thought that they would work out. Others are experiencing great anticipation for changes in life and what's about to happen in the months ahead. And, and some of you are experiencing peace and joy and, and finding rest in this particular season. And that's wonderful. But even in the in, in midst of all the circumstances that we find ourselves in, and different though they are, we all come here tonight sharing something in common. Every one of us in this room, in the midst, of, not despite the circumstances, but in the midst of these circumstances, find ourselves benefactors of grace. We're benefactors of an extraordinary salvation. And Paul shares with us in the first three chapters what that looks like. And if we were to summarize that, we'd say that he is explaining that there is a spiritual and supernatural salvation that we're all a part of. And he begins by saying that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then he spends the next few verses and really the next few chapters explaining what those blessings are. And, and it's not an exhaustive list. There's much more, but there's a lot there for us to think about and to remember particularly tonight. When you think of our salvation, we think that we've been chosen. Paul says we've been chosen before the foundation of the world. He says we've been predestined to adoption. We were all sons and daughters of His. Not of Paul's, but of God's. We are redeemed. We're forgiven. We have a spirit of wisdom and revelation. We have hope. We have a spiritual life. We have spiritual sight. We've been guaranteed an inheritance. Faith has been given to us as a gift. Salvation has been given to us as a gift. We've been chosen to be holy and blameless before Him. We've been shown mercy. And we've been shown the mystery of God's will. We've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. We've been shown kindness. We've been seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. We've been saved for good works. We've been, who, we who are far off have been brought near. We've been reconciled to God. We've been reconciled to one another. We've been made fellow citizens of the kingdom. We've been made heirs and partakers of the promises of God that were found in Abraham. We've been given gifts to serve one another. And we're, all, we're told we're all stones. We're living stones that are being made into a 
dwelling place for God. And the bottom line is, we all have Christ. Every one of us has the Lord Jesus. If we were to put it another way, we, we know we have an extraordinary salvation because it's both spiritual and supernatural because we know that we have been moved from a place from death to life. We are no longer in bondage, but we are free. We are no longer enemies, but we're children. We're awaiting, uh, we were awaiting wrath, and now we're awaiting forgiveness. We were awaiting consequences. Now we're, we're expecting an inheritance that's really already ours and being held for us. We were expecting defeat, but now we stand in victory. Paul says, basically, we've all been lavished with grace. Lavished with grace because all of us, all of that that I've just mentioned, all that we've been reading, all that we've read in those first three chapters, everything was given to us because of God's grace. None of it was what we deserved in any way. It was all based on the purpose, will, and discretion of God. It wasn't anything that we earned or merited. It was based solely upon Christ meriting that for us through His life, death, and resurrection. And that's why Paul says that we've been given those spiritual blessings. It's Actually, he says it's in Christ we have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And all of this was motivated by an inexhaustible, immeasurable, purposeful, Mindful, specific, covenant-making, covenant-keeping, steadfast love that knows no bounds and was set upon you and me. Again, because of God's purpose, will, discretion, and pleasure. And He expressed that love to us in and through the person and work of the Lord Jesus. And He is ours. And we are His. Brothers and sisters, no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're experiencing, no matter what you've lost, no matter how difficult things are, you still and always will have Christ And is it any wonder that Paul breaks into prayer at the conclusion of chapter 3, praying that they, praying that we would understand that love. And why I said last week it'd be a great prayer to pray us for one another. But this extraordinary salvation is not only spiritual and supernatural i used the word earlier it's it's radical because it's culture or countercultural it leads to countercultural living remember in chapter 4 verse 1 we're called to walk in a manner worthy of that calling so we're called to walk as benefactors of grace and as we said several weeks ago that We should, as we went through chapter 4, the reality is we should live differently than non-Christians. 
There should be a difference in how we live. There should be a difference between how a person lavished with grace lives and a person that hasn't been lavished with grace. There are to be those marked differences. There is an expected change. And Paul is clear throughout what that looks like through those next three chapters. And, and, but rather than to list them all, I'm going to just summarize again, boil them down for us. If we were to walk through and if we remember back through those chapters, he, he says that our extraordinary salvation is exhibited in a countercultural living because it's marked by unity, spiritual maturity, purity, humility, and dependence. And I say that's countercultural because I want you to think about what's being expressed and lived out in the culture around us, right? right? Remember, unity, spiritual maturity, purity, humility, and dependency. But we live in a culture that is filled with division and tribalism and pluralism and intersectionality and immaturity, impurity, immorality, materialism, individualism, selfishness, pride, and arrogance. In the life Paul has called us to and that we've been contemplating over the last several months is it's the kind of life that isn't self-serving but self-sacrificing. It's the kind of love that's not demanding but mutually submissive. It's the kind of life that's not selfish or hate-filled, but it it exhibits a, a dignity and a respect for everybody around us. It's the kind of life, or it's not a life of self-sufficiency, but it's a life of dependency and interdependency. It's not a get-all-you-can kind of life. It's a give what you're able to give because you've been given everything you could possibly need. That's different. That's countercultural. It's different from what the world around us exhibits and what they expect. And we're called to that. But you also know we've been reminded over and over each and every week that that's a whole lot easier said than done, right? It's a lot easier said than done because it is our call and it is realistic and it's not unrealistic to expect that because we have been set free that we might live in that way. We've been saved to live in that way. And there's joy and blessing that comes when we live in that way. But we admit in our moments, there are moments when we're unwilling There are moments when we fail. There are moments that we fall short. There are moments that we sin. And we're reminded in those moments. And this is how extraordinary our salvation is because it's in those moments because of who we are and whose we are and who we're united to that we're allowed and able to fall back into the loving and gracious arms of God. We fall back into His arms And find kindness that leads us to repentance and forgiveness. And that in turn overwhelms us to a place where we're out of gratitude. We're propelled to go and and to continue to strive forward to live as we're called to live. I don't know a better word than extraordinary.
But Paul also says that that extraordinary salvation is exhibited. It's countercultural, and I used the term radical, and I wish I hadn't, but even in that countercultural manner, it's done in the ordinary living. It's about ordinary lives. Listen again to Dr. Horton. He says, The gospel is truly radical, the power of God for salvation. Through this gospel, the Holy Spirit creates the faith to embrace Christ with all His benefits. We're delivered from condemnation and are made part of the new creation in Christ. Filled with grateful hearts, we look for ways to glorify God and to love and serve our neighbors. We're eager to grow. Fueled by gratitude, we look for opportunities to glorify God and to love and serve others. Yet, it is easy to take the gospel for granted. Then we find ourselves running out of, the, out of that high-octane fuel, running out of gas in the middle of the busy highway of a myriad of calls to get in the fast lane. In the zeal created by the gospel itself, we can leave the gospel behind as we gravitate toward calls to something more. And brothers and sisters, the reality is there isn't anything more. The gospel is extraordinary and and living counterculturally can cause it can cause us and pull us into doing big things for God, as I've already mentioned. And we begin somehow to, to believe that we're to go out and we're to transform culture and we're to reform institutions and reform governments and change the world and leave a legacy and hope that others follow along in that and hopefully we spur them on to do what we've done. And I think Paul's point is very, very, very different. Because it's not about the big things that we can do for God, but it's about the big thing that He's done for us. It's not about what we transform and what we reform, but it's about the fact that we've been transformed by Him and He continues to conform us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ in the day to day. And that is a slow As Caleb and I were talking last week, it's a slow, simple process that takes place by the Spirit in the routines, in the interactions, in the conversations, in the midst of our varied circumstances we experience, whether, again, that's at home, in the marketplace, or here as a body of believers as we live together. The lives we live are ordinary lives of faithfulness. Faithfulness to the little things. Faithfulness in the mundane things. In the regular routines. In the everyday schedules. It's not glamorous. It's not exciting. And it's not going to produce the endorphins that we seem to look for. It's a life concerned about the depth of of our connections and not the extent of our reach. It's a life that focuses on the needs that we can meet, not in the status that we can obtain. It's a life 
It's about grace and love, not about publicity or likes or followers that we generate. It's about authenticity that we experience and not the facades that we try to maintain. What does that look like? It's a life of changing diapers. It's a life of going to the zoo, swinging in the park, walking on the trail behind your house. It's a life that takes place when you care for the sick or when you teach in the classroom. It's a life that goes on on corporate conference calls and meeting deadlines. It's a life that's experienced when you take the time to text or make a phone call. It's the, it's the life that's expressed in listening to the frustrations of the day and consoling in the midst of grief. It's a life that, that we express when we remember names and exchange handshakes or hugs or laughs or cries. It happens in the moments of empathy and support as well as firmness and rebuke. It's experienced in baking cookies and preparing a meal either for your family or somebody else's. It's in completing the doing of the odd jobs that have needed to be done. And it's playing with the children on the floor. And it's holding your spouse's hair back in the midst of the flu. It's experienced in the long trips back and forth to minister to parents. It's experienced in the late night, early morning, throughout the day, short and specific prayers on behalf of one another that nobody sees. And it's a life experienced through the simple means of grace and the sustained rhythms of unentertaining biblical worship. It's acknowledging sin and pointing others to Christ. It's spurring one another on to love and good deeds. It's providing the safety where questions can be asked. It's not forsaking the gathering together and it's letting others know that they were missed. It happens in the singing for others when they can't seem to to find the strength to sing for themselves. And it's praying for one another that we'd all be filled with the knowledge of Christ that we would be able to withstand an evil day. It's in life that's experienced through conversations about faith and doubt and life and death with our neighbors. It's experienced as we give a defense for the hope that we have of this extraordinary salvation that we've experienced and the change that it's produced and the life that we struggle with day in and day out. And it happens as we refrain from being argumentative and throwing around antagonistic rhetoric and simply share what we believe without being defensive. 
It happens as we exhibit confidence and faith and hope and peace and assurance that comes only by the Spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ who has sealed us and fills us and dwells us by His grace. That's why we decided to preach through this letter as we began our church. And I pray that as we move into this second six months of our first year, that this will be a foundation upon which everything else is built over the weeks and months and years ahead. As we consider this extraordinary salvation and the the ordinary lives that we live, that we're mindful of what Christ has done for us, that we're mindful of living worthy of our calling and making the most of the time because the days are evil and we find ourselves in 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 an evil day and in the midst of warfare, praying for one another that we might be able to resist. Praying that the gospel would go forward. So I say, peace be to you, brothers and sisters, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all of you who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.